Biomimicry is about looking to nature as a source of inspiration for new sustainable solutions. There's huge potential to use biomimicry to create, frankly, better architecture. Welcome to Soho House 76 Dean Street, where tonight I, Lida Hujic, will be in conversation with the world's leading authority on biomimicry in architecture and design, Michael Paulin. In developed countries, we have got into very established ways of doing things and it can be quite difficult to change that mindset. Is it possible to build a world of sustainable beauty? The answer is yes, through the transformative power of biomimicry. Tonight then we'll be stepping into the future. We'll be talking about biomimicry and more specifically biomimicry in architecture because I'm very pleased to say that we have here one of the leading experts in the field of biomimicry in architecture. And I want to say thank you very much, Michael, for coming here tonight. Thanks for involving me. So for laymen like me, and some of us, I'm sure, in the audience who are interested but not well informed, what is biomimicry? So biomimicry is is basically about looking at how problems have been solved in biology and then translating that understanding into innovations that suit human needs. And I've got a a couple of examples here. So this one starts with a marine biologist uh, whose genuine name is Dr. Frank Fish. And I'm not making that up. (laughs) And um, he was looking at humpback whales one day. And he noticed that on the front edge of their flippers, they have these lumps called tubercles. And uh, he wasn't too sure what they were about. So he looked into it. And it turned out that those improve the maneuverability, the hydrodynamics of the humpback whale when it's swimming in quite slow, tight circles, because that's how it feeds. And um, Dr. Fish thought, well, I know what I could do with that. I could use that uh, to design a better type of wind turbine blade, because at the moment, when the wind drops to slow speeds, if the wind turbine stops turning, then the wind has to pick up quite a lot before it'll start turning again. So Dr. Fish uh, invented the whale power wind turbine blade, and uh, the great thing about this is it'll, it maintains operations at slow speed. And it's argued that uh, wind turbines with these type of blades can produce as much as 10% more electricity o- over the course of, of a year. And this next example, um, this is probably one of, the, one of the oldest examples of biomimicry. So um, for any of you who've been to Florence and seen the amazing dome over the cathedral designed by Filippo Brunelleschi, He looked at bird shells and seashells when he was designing that to try and uh, create the thinnest possible dome. And it was only by doing that that he managed to create the largest dome that had ever been made. So he was basing that on a a fairly basic level of of scientific knowledge. But what we have now is the huge advantage of, of way superior scientific knowledge. So if you look at one of those abalone shells under an electron microscope, it's made up out of layers of calcium carbonate, and those are connected together with a flexible protein. And that microstructure gives it amazing resistance to crack propagation and amazing strength. So at a chemical level, that is 95% identical to ordinary blackboard chalk. But because of that microstructure, it achieves 3,000 times the strength. And recently... My office, um, it's got exploration. We had a go at designing a house based on this same idea. 
we use the shell form to, to determine the, the macrostructure, the sort of large-scale uh, curves, as well as the microstructure. So it's built up out of layers of tiles that are connected together. And we're pretty confident that that uh, would use about half the amount of uh, material of a conventional house. Uh, frustratingly, the client that we designed that for, um, once we showed him that, he decided he didn't like curves. Uh, which is kind of frustrating because I don't know why he came to us in the first place. Um, but anyway, um, it, the, the idea is sound, so we're now looking for someone else to, uh, to realize that. That's just a sort of introduction to show some of the potential of biomimicry, showing how we could create much more efficient buildings, how we could create more efficient networks for cities, um, and overall address some of the really big challenges that we need to address over the next few decades, challenges of climate change, resource depletion, biodiversity loss, and so on. So do you think the best way is to start looking at some of your projects, okay. sort of theme a little bit more so that we see what they, they can do? So we were approached by a, a client in India and he wanted to create a new paradigm for textile factories in India. So you know, a lot of us have heard of some of the horror stories of, of garment factories and so on. Um, and um, he was determined to create a completely uh, new paradigm for industrial buildings in India. And that was partly about uh, resource flows and it was partly about working conditions. So he wanted us to design a factory that was as close as possible to zero waste. Uh, it would need to be very close to closed loop in its water use, as well as being a fantastic working environment for the, for the people inside. So we worked with a biologist, a water expert and a green chemist to, to rethink um, a lot of the processes and um, try to design out most of the toxins uh, from the, the dyeing processes. And that would allow us to adopt much uh, more benign biological approaches to water treatment. So all the way down the middle there, those are uh, reed beds that use plants and microorganisms to, to treat the waste from the dyeing industry. And it was partly about creating very efficient structures. So you know, we looked at examples like uh, this uh, fruit bat to help us design a, a really lightweight structure. And then for, for the uh, cycles of, of energy and water and, and waste, we learned from ecosystem models there. In mature ecosystems, they're completely closed loop in terms of their flows of resources. And the waste from one organism becomes the nutrient for something else in that system. And you can apply very similar principles to industrial buildings, even to cities, that can gradually move us towards zero waste ways of operating. So that, that factory is completely, if, when it gets built, it'll be completely zero carbon, runs it'll run entirely on solar energy, it'll be a, a great working environment for the people inside, and it'll be pretty close to, to zero waste and closed loop on water. Now, I wish it was easier to get these things implemented. Um, the client that we uh, did that for, they postponed it for three years because they weren't convinced that the economic case was, was powerful enough. And we said, okay, just supposing it was to be built just like that, and on the opening day, you were to bring around one of your best clients, say the international buyer for H&M, and on the basis of what he or she saw, that if they were to give you an average size contract, what would that be worth? And our client said, oh, the profit from that would pay for the building several times over. So we said, well, why aren't you prepared to go for it then? And they said, well, we're not convinced that's real. And one of the problems is that some of the big garment manufacturers, uh, sorry, some of the big um, 
uh, fashion houses, they're, they're making quite a bit of progress with the way their garments are assembled. So they've looked at the factory conditions. But in terms of the ecological impact, about 90% of that is actually at the yarn production stage. It's, it's where the, the, the cotton gets turned from raw cotton into finished printed fabrics. When it gets assembled into clothes, that's uh, pretty minor in terms of the environmental impacts. So we've been working with our clients and, and we've been uh, getting meetings uh, with uh, senior people at M&S and H&M and so on, trying to close that kind of information gap and persuade uh, both of them really that there is a, a compelling case for this. So we're still very confident this will get built, uh, but it is quite frustrating that more of these solutions uh, which work very well, but sometimes have a, a payback period of, say, four, five, six years, they're regarded as uneconomic. And I really think we need to adopt a, 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 a broader approach to economics that is prepared to contemplate a slightly longer-term payback period. So that's one factory. Now, the other project, yes, is uh, the biomimicry. Is that the museum? Yes, the biomimicry yeah. museum. So tell us a little bit sure. more about that. Okay, so um, this is to be in, um, I can't tell you exactly where it is, but it's going to be in the Middle East in a, a desert environment. And one of the things that's interesting about deserts, if you're a biomimicry geek like me, is that often the most extreme environments have evolved some of the most amazing solutions. So in deserts where water is incredibly scarce, you get amazing organisms like this. This is the, uh, the, the thorny devil, and this can drink with its feet if it's standing on slightly damp ground, the water tracks up capillary grooves in its skin all the way up to its lips, and then it licks its lips and looks rather pleased with itself. So it's an amazingly highly tuned water collection device. And we looked at that for the Biomimicry Museum because our client wanted to have a kind of oasis garden in this. In the end, we actually went with Camel's Nostrils, uh, now, camels get a bit, a bit of a bad rap. They're sometimes described as a horse designed by committee, and that is so disrespectful, honestly. Camels are amazing. Uh, let me just tell you a few things about their nostrils. So um, if, you, if you were to sort of take a slice through a camel's nose, um, what you see is that it's made of these very intricate passageways, which are called nasal turbinates. And those are bony structures covered with thin tissue uh, that's richly uh, vascular, so that as it breathes in, that those nasal turbinates evaporate moisture from its blood into the, into the air to cool it and humidify it, so it's less of a shock to the system. When the camel breathes out, that warm, humid air passes those same surfaces, which are now cool because of evaporative cooling, and so a lot of that moisture recondenses and is captured by the camel. The small amount of moisture that it loses in the air that it breathes out, it gets evaporative cooling benefits from that so that it can keep its eyeballs and its brain as much as six degrees C cooler than the rest of its body. Um, I mean, this led to a, a design of a roof uh, which uses exactly the same principles of the camel's nostrils. And we can use that to collect moisture, water from the air and use that to, to water an oasis garden. The enclosed part of the museum, which accommodates all the artifacts that are based on biomimicry, and um, then that's a, a view into that space. And that structure is actually based on um, uh, bird skulls. Uh, bird skulls have a, an amazingly efficient structure made up of very, very thin layers of bone connected together with struts and ties. Um, 
So that that w- was forming the the overall uh, outer structure, which is strong enough to to hang quite large exhibits from, like uh, planes and um, aerial walkways and and so on. So what's the elements of uh, or the team, if you wish, uh, of people who need to be involved to build a project that involves um, biomimicry in architecture, because you are an architect by trade. So would you kind of tell us a little bit about how it works and who are the teams and where the knowledge comes from? Yeah. Okay, well, it, it used to be, when I first started doing this kind of 15 years ago, it was a bit random, actually. It was a matter of sort of what crossed your radar. Um, I managed to get together an R&D team at the office I worked for previously, and we went through the last sort of 20 years' worth of new scientist magazines, uh, pulling out some of the most interesting examples. Uh, more recently, we've been able to get much more systematic about this because there are now really good online resources. There's a, um, a database called asknature.org, and you can put any pretty much any question into that, like, you know, how would nature make foundations in loose ground or whatever? And then it comes up with five or ten, sometimes more, biological organisms that have already solved that problem. The other thing we do is that we we work with biologists. We've got to know a couple of really good ones that have encyclopedic knowledge, and they seem to always know who the best experts are for a a certain thing. So it it all comes down to what the functional problem is you're trying to solve. If you're trying to make, make a really efficient structure or find a way of harvesting water in a desert or whatever, the biologists that we've got to know they always seem to know who's doing the most relevant research around the world. And then it's a matter of trying to get that knowledge and expertise into the team and then unifying that into a cohesive overall vision. But as a pioneer, is it difficult because this is really systemic change? It's a new way of building things, right? So how how did you even start thinking of biomimicry as a solution to some of the big problems that we're having? Well, as a teenager, I was passionate about three things, biology, design, and the environment. Um, And I couldn't see at that stage how you could bring those things together. So I thought about studying biology at university, uh, but I couldn't see the creative side of it. So I left that behind and went to study architecture. And then it was like 12 years later when I joined Grimshaw to work on the Eden Project, that's when I realized there was a way to bring these three things together in pursuit of sustainable architecture inspired by nature. And the idea was that it was a a global showcase for biodiversity that would really convey some of the powerful stories about humans' dependence on plants, our dependence on plants for clothing, for medicine, for uh, food, shelter, and so on. Right from the beginning, there was a, a really sort of compelling content for it. And there was a, a visionary client, Tim Schmidt, who uh, really uh, wanted a, a dramatic bit of architecture. He wanted a sort of James Bond quality to the architecture. And, um, well, it, you know, it was, a, it was a fantastic project to work on. And um, he, he was a great guy to work with as well. So it, it was a really successful project in all sorts of ways. And then from there on, you set off on your own to set up your company about 10 years ago, I'd say, That's right, 2007. Yeah. So h- how did you take that plunge? You were very brave. Oh, well, it, it was something I, I had always wanted to do. Uh, and at that time, I was convinced that biomimicry was about to absolutely explode. Um, and uh, it hasn't quite happened like that. It, it's been a much slower sort of takeoff. But there's definitely growing interest, more in other fields, actually. Uh, there's a huge amount of interest in biomimicry 
in the fields of robotics, in medical design, in engineering, material science. Um, architecture, for whatever reason, seems to be a bit slow in, in um, taking off itself. Um, and when I set up my company, I wanted to try a slightly different way of working, where you start with a highly idealized notion of what you're going to create. You develop it up to a certain point, and then you find the client for it, or you find a way uh, to make it um, a reality. And actually, this next project I've got lined up here. So this is a new concept for a data center. Um, and this is in, well, it would be in Norway if it gets built. Um, so a conventional way of designing data centers is you have them in cities or close to cities, or you even have servers in buildings. And a lot of the energy required to run them is just required to keep them cool. And nature probably wouldn't do it that way because nature doesn't have access to intense forms of energy like fossil fuels or uh, grid electricity. So uh, animals have evolved much simpler ways of keeping cool. They might uh, pant or sweat for evaporative cooling, or they might just go somewhere that is, is cool. Um, so that was the first move, that we would locate this somewhere that's already very cold. In this case, a mountain in Norway that's already been carved out for marble mining. And it's got 90 kilometers of tunnels that are all at a steady temperature of about 5 degrees C. So then, working with the biologists on our team, we worked out that the, the key challenge was how do we draw that free source of cool air through the individual data blocks in the most efficient way? And he told us we need to understand a thing called Murray's Law. So most branching systems in biology follow a mathematical principle that's referred to as Murray's Law. So there's a very constant ratio between the diameters of those vessels there's a constant angle of branching, and there's a certain finessing to those junctions. And that appears to be an evolved minimum energy solution. So we designed this um, data center based on the same principles. So that extract system is based exactly on Murray's law. And if it gets built, it should be one of the lowest energy data centers in the world. Unfortunately, the client for that made a bit of a mistake on his business plan. He let the owners of the mountain get a bit too close to the business plan, and they saw how profitable it was going to be. So they started asking for, for rent for these caves. It was almost as much as office space in the center of Oslo. Um, so the kind of negotiations collapsed to that point, which was a shame. But anyway, we're still working with the client, and we're trying to find other locations that would be suitable. Okay, I want to thank you for your attention and open the floor. So if we have any questions from the audience... Hi, my name is Millie Kerr, and I'm a conservation journalist. And my question is, have you encountered a situation yet where you've been speaking with a client or been approached by someone who wants to do a you know project featuring biomimicry, but then the underlying business that they would be utilizing or the business practices of that person is not sustainable? And how would you handle that situation? We've never sort of parted company on bad terms with the clients um, because they didn't share our vision. We normally manage to find some kind of common ground. But then again, you know, we, we um, tend not to seek out clients that are clearly unsustainable at the start. Um, so we, we, we're definitely pretty selective about what projects we take on because it's only really worth us taking on projects where we feel that we can add value. Otherwise, they, you know, they might as well work um, with, with someone else. That, that's not meant to sound superior or, or anything. It's just about not wasting anyone's time. I mean, as far as possible, we always 
try and um, transform situations rather than kind of get grumpy about them. Just one more question. You've touched on costs a little bit, but um, just taking like the house, for instance, is the reason that the cost might be higher overall because you pay a premium for a more sophisticated design and that, you know, the design process is presumably a little bit more complex since you're looking into biomimicry or is it that the raw materials cost more or some combination? Uh, well, it's a bit of both. Um, but don't, don't necessarily assume that it's always more expensive. The Eden project was a third of the cost of a conventional glass roof because we'd followed examples of very efficient structures in biology. And generally, uh, projects that have quite large spans or projects that deal with large flows of resources, uh, whether that's food, water, energy, or waste, or whatever, those can be cheaper, uh, even at the outset, and much cheaper in terms of, of running costs. The thing that's difficult is um, just getting people to try something they're not completely familiar with. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that the stuff I talk about is very theoretical and it might be possible in 20 or 30 years' time. And I, I don't see it that way at all. I think it's very practical and we really should be demonstrating more of this kind of leadership, actually, if we're serious about addressing the kind of challenges which our kids and grandkids will find unforgivable. Uh, we should be prepared to take a, a longer perspective on things. And, and all of us, really, in, in business at least, need to demonstrate that kind of leadership, I think. We have time for one more. Okay, hi. Uh, thank you, first, uh, first of all, for this very interesting talk. My name is Maya Morgenstern. I'm a cultural journalist, and I'm very interested in what you had to say. I wanted to know how you find a balance between uh, the efficiency of this biomimicry and uh, functionality and aesthetic. For example, you had a client. It was a very efficient house. Obviously, it didn't like curve. I mean, it's a problem, but at the end of the day, the house doesn't get built. Uh, other buildings, you need to look at uh, the flow of traffic um, between departments and basically how functional as opposed to efficient is biomimicry. Well, I would argue that it's much more functional than conventional approaches because it's actually getting closer to the really highly refined solutions that exist in biology. The, the problem that you sometimes find is that there is a kind of gap uh, between what would be biologically optimum and what is achievable with our current technology and um, timeframes and, and costs. But you know, having said that, it's getting easier and easier to design really complex uh, structures like that using 3D printing and 3D manufacturing. And the interesting thing about that is that uh, previously, with uh, complexity in design and manufacturing, that nearly always meant additional cost because it was more difficult. But with 3D printing, there's no cost penalty for complexity. And if you can actually achieve, uh, if you can use less resources by putting them exactly where they need to be, by following the lessons in biology, you can actually achieve a cost saving by using far less material. Some of the buildings we've worked on are, are really rigorously functional. The textile factory, there was no scope there for frivolousness. That was a, a really rigorously functional building. And so some of the examples we looked at in, in biology were applicable in theory, but they wouldn't work practically or, or aesthetically. So, you know, it, it, it partly comes down to how specific the function is. Um, I, I'm a functionalist. I, I design functional buildings. And yes, that, that house 
was perfectly functional. That client just decided he didn't like curves, which is a shame. So, you know, the lesson there is, well, you know, that's not the right client for us. Um, you know, some people don't like curves. I find that a slightly curious um, position personally. But anyway, um, so I, d- I don't think there's anything insurmountable about that, that, that issue of function and aesthetics. Can we get a round of applause then for Michael? Thank you. Thank you. This programme was brought to you by Server House and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Lida Hugic, and featured architect Michael Pauling. <laughs>